Welcome, and thank you to our audience for joining us online and to our speakers here at the Arizona State University California Center at the historic Herald Examiner Building. With great respect, Zocalo Public Square acknowledges the Huhaviatam, the first people of this ancestral and unceded territory of Yangva that we now know as downtown Los Angeles. We honor their elders, past and present, and the Yuhaviatam's descendants who are part of the Gabrieleño, Tongva, and the Fernandeño Tataviam nations. We recognize that the Tanva are still here, and we are committed to lifting up their stories, culture, and community. As Kuuyam, we recognize our responsibility and obligation to care for their land. I'm Erin Brown, and I'm the editorial director for Zocalo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free, and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and presents conversations like this one. You can find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org, on all major podcast platforms, and on YouTube. So please subscribe for our latest events. Tonight's program is presented in partnership with ASU's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. We're asking, does the First Amendment still protect free speech? Our moderator is Carla Hall, a Los Angeles Times editorial board member who writes about homelessness, reproductive rights, popular culture, animal welfare, and human rights in Asia and Africa, among other topics. Before joining the editorial board, she was a general assignment reporter for the Times California section. Over to you, Carla. Um, thank you. Hello, everyone. Welcome. Thank you for joining us tonight. Uh, I'm delighted to be moderating. And here are our fantastic guests. Dr. Batinto L. Batts, Jr. is the Dean of the Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State University. He was previously the Director of Journalism Strategies at the Scripps Howard Foundation. He began his career in journalism reporting for the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Virginia Daily Press, the Tampa Bay Times, and the South Florida Sun Sentinel, and has since served as journalism professor and leader at Hampton University, University of Cincinnati, and now ASU. Welcome. Thank you. Jody David Armour is the Roy P. Crocker Professor of Law at the University of Southern California. He is a widely published scholar and lecturer on the intersections of race, law, morality, psychology, and politics, and the author of two books on racism and the law. He is a Soros Justice Senior Fellow of the Open Society Institute's Center on Crime, Communities, and Culture, and he is on the board of directors for the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. He is the author of In Asterisks GGA Theory. Thank you, welcome. Jean-Paul Jassy is an attorney and partner at Jassy Vic Carolyn. He litigates nationwide with an emphasis on disputes in media, inter internet, entertainment, and the First Amendment. JP's clients include internet giants, TV networks, newspapers, movie studios, and award-winning reporters. He has been named to the best lawyers in America annually for over a decade and has been recognized four times as Lawyer of the Year in Los Angeles. He is the founder of two top-tier law firms and has successfully litigated cases in the United States Supreme Court and the California Supreme Court. Welcome, JP. And I'm glad you haven't had to represent me yet. <laughs> and Eugene Volokh is the Gary T. Schwartz Distinguished Professor of Law, UCLA School of Law. Before coming to UCLA, he clerked for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor on the U.S. Supreme Court and for Judge Alex Kaczynski on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. He is the author of two legal textbooks, over 90 law review articles, and the blog, The Volokh Conspiracy, hosted by Reason Magazine. He has filed briefs in over 125 appellate cases since 2013 
and has argued in 35 federal and state appellate cases dealing with free speech. So thank you all. Thank you, Eugene. Thank you, everyone, for being here. And before we start, I want to remind everyone in the audience that we'll be taking questions throughout the discussion. If you're here in person, you can text your questions to the number on your wristband. And if you're watching online, ask your questions in the live chat and say hi and let us know where you're tuning in from. So let's get started. So a few years ago, the University of Michigan law professor Catherine McKinnon wrote in an essay, once a defense of the powerless, the First Amendment over the last hundred years has mainly become a weapon of the powerful. Legally, what was towards the beginning of the 20th century, a shield for radicals, artists, and activists, socialists and pacifists, the excluded and the dispossessed, has become a sword for authoritarians, racists and misogynists, Nazis and Klansmen, pornographers, and corporations buying elections. <laughs> what do you make of that? Well, so uh, the First Amendment protects the freedom of speech. Doesn't protect the freedom of speech for the powerless. Doesn't protect the freedom of speech for this group or that group. It protects the freedom of speech. We shouldn't be surprised that anybody who speaks would claim, make claims under the freedom of speech and that the Supreme Court would protect those claims in many situations and reject them in some situations. So uh, throughout the history of the First Amendment, this has been so, right? Uh, so talking about, uh, uh, about uh, racists and others, 1931, uh, near v. Minnesota, uh, one of the, one of the cases, the, the, one of the first two cases, they both came down within a month or so of each other in 1931. First two cases where the Supreme Court actually accepted a free speech claim Near ran a local newspaper. He probably wasn't very powerful. He was a nasty anti-Semite. Uh, it's been so from the get-go. And I think the justices protected him not because he was an anti-Semite, but because they figured, look, we can't protect speech, but only if it's one group that, that's claiming. And that's not going to be a viable, viable system. In fact, the reason I think that free speech has been so broadly protective uh, is precisely that a lot of groups find themselves invested in it, find themselves wanting to see that kind of protection for them. But on, so I think that, that, uh, that's been the law for a long time, and I think quite rightly so. But one thing to keep in mind is the really powerful never need free speech protection, because you only need free speech protection when some government entity is trying to restrict your speech. So you could say, well, it's the powerful people who are, who are bringing some claim, but it's because somebody more powerful than them, the government, has been trying to restrict their speech. Uh, so as a general matter, by and large, uh, it is going to be groups, well, excuse me, always it's going to be groups that lack the power that the government has. And by and large, they're going to be groups that for whatever reason, they may be powerful, but they have more powerful enemies, more powerful people that, uh, that, uh, that want to restrict them that are going to get this protection. But to the extent there are some groups that are, you know, like newspapers, it's not like newspapers have been powerless throughout much of American history. They're important beneficiaries uh, 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 of the First Amendment. Uh, and I think oh, the country as a whole uh, benefits from that, but it's because the freedom of speech is the freedom for speech and for press of many, uh, and not just the particular groups that we think most deserve it because we think they, they're somehow uh, outsiders of a sort that we want to especially protect. Well, but I also think that, don't you think she was thinking about like Citizens United and stuff like that? Sure, so here's a, that's a classic example. So Citizens United was not a particularly powerful group. It was a organization that was trying to put together, uh, to put together um, uh, uh, basically uh, a, a, a political videos. It, was, it had a video that was distributing that was sharply critical of Hillary Clinton shortly before, I want to say, the 2008 election, maybe even earlier. Uh, in any event, so, uh, uh, so it, it, was, it was much less powerful than the LA Times, much less powerful than the New York Times, mm -hmm. famous for New York Times v. Sullivan or New York Times v. U.S., the Pentagon Papers case. So it wasn't a particularly powerful group. And obviously, 
somebody more powerful than it, it, that is to say the United States Congress, enacted a statute that limited the ability of corporations and unions, mind you, corporations and unions always treated the same way there, uh, to speak out about candidates. Now, to be sure, it is true that the Citizens United decision also benefited more powerful corporations. One reason why Google and Facebook and Apple and such uh, are have so much, so much power over their networks uh, is because they have First Amendment protections that Citizens United helped reaffirm. It made clear that, that corporations are protected by the First Amendment, although that's been long understood in considerable measure, again, as, as well as unions. But if you look at the really kind of, at, at other corporations other than big tech, most of them actually don't spend a lot of money on uh, political campaigns. In fact, actually, unions probably spend about as much uh, as, as corporations do uh, under Citizens United. Now, unions are powerful too, but again, I don't think the First Amendment is First Amendment for everybody except corporations and unions. Uh, I think it's the First Amendment for, for, for or people who often organize themselves through organizations like corporations or unions. And finally, the last thing is LA Times is many things, but it is also a corporation. I mean, I think it may be, I forget the name, whatever you guys call yourself these days. I it do changes too because so often. Changes so but newspapers are corporations. Since 1936, it has been clear uh, under the US Supreme Court's case law that corporations such as media corporations are protected by the First Amendment. There's nothing terribly new about that. And if you try to suppress the speech of corporations, you'll be suppressing the speech of newspapers and of religious groups and of others as well. Well, but then why does it seem like, um, and maybe this is just a false perception, but why it seems like that there's so many, the defense of people's rights to say things or do things, a lot of it seems kind of hateful. The, the baker who won't bake the cake for the gay couple, the gay wedding couple. Uh, the anti-gay church members who show up at military funerals that say signs like, thank God for dead soldiers. I mean, is this, has this always been a thing? It's just that now it's gotten more attention. I mean, uh, what do you think? I think it, it has always been a thing. I think it, now it's getting more attention because media is so pervasive now. Yeah. And, um, Everything uh, is picked up on various channels, and uh, we have such a big audience. I mean, what, what we define as, as audience now has become so complex that, um, you know, so many different people are, are able to see it and weigh in and, provide an, in and provide an opinion or perspective on it. And these things don't maybe go away as, as quickly. And so I, I think that this isn't new. It's just maybe the volume has been turned up uh, more. Um, that's a good point. That's a good point. But you know, getting back to those powerful media companies, um, <laughs> JP, you represent media companies, reporters, and nonprofits. I mean, are your cases, your First Amendment cases, what are they like? Well, I love all my clients. They're all wonderful. Um, the the, we've had a really great experience representing all different kinds of, and when I say we, I mean my firm, my colleagues. Um, and what we do is we really take a position that freedom of speech, as Eugene was saying, it's for everybody. And so we have had an opportunity to represent all sorts of media companies. Um, and it's important to remember that when they're, uh, they're trying to disseminate information, um, there's, you know, they get a, there's a lot going on right now where people are down on media companies or down on journalists. Yeah. But it's to me, it's a very noble profession because what they're doing is they're trying to inform people on in a democracy you really can't function properly if you're not properly informed. And the backbone of free speech comes through journalists. And so, yes, I mean, we take a lot of pride in representing media companies. We also have represented all different uh, types of folks that need free speech help. And, and, and nonprofits. And the reason why we take this as a principal position and we don't take cases that are against the First Amendment is because we have this commitment to it, right? So when you look at, um, like Eugene was saying, when you look at the history going back and, and just to expand on that a little bit, I don't necessarily think that there has been a, a huge change. This is something that's been going on for a long time. There are people that have hateful messages. There are people that have important uh, messages of change. There are people who 
and, and, and I think this is the way it's going to be. It's for everyone. And that's one of the things that makes our country great. It also is one of the things that can hurt people and it makes people feel vulnerable. But it's, it's part of our democracy. It's part of our ability to talk to one another. And that's one of the reasons why. And, and you know, uh, I think when you look at the media companies, um, my experience has been that they're, they are genuinely trying to get it right. They're genuinely trying to tell a story. They're trying to educate people, whether it's through a newspaper article or a documentary. They want to get it right. And so that's why I think representing the media is important um, as, a, as a lawyer. That's how I feel about it. And do you win all the time? Do I win all the time? Of course I win every, no. <laughs> Never trust anyone who says they win all the time, right? No, I, but I, we take pride in, in pushing for it and pushing for the, the, the principle. Um, and there have been cases where we've had to ask ourselves, is this, is this something that we know is going to be controversial, that we know is going to be unpopular? And we have taken cases like that. But always on the side of what we perceive to be freedom of speech, freedom of the press. And that's hard sometimes. You know, sometimes there are people who are saying things or doing things that are not popular. Um, but like what was an unpopular case you took? <laughs> well, um, it depends how you look at it and who the crowd <laughs> is and who's paying attention. But and bear in mind, we, we represent lots of media companies. But one of, the more, one of the ones that was a little bit more controversial, I'd say, was we represented the National Enquirer when they were sued by Karen McDougal over the catch and kill stories. Mm -hmm. And the position that we took, which was based on a US Supreme Court decision called Miami Herald versus Tornillo, is that media companies can decide what they want to publish or not publish. And so we said, listen, this is a media company. If they don't want to publish something, they don't have to publish. And it, this, is, this happens all the time. And if we start getting into that system where we're going to examine what a newspaper or a TV station or a radio station is going to publish or is going to put in on the air and start telling them you have to print this or you have to print that, it's very dangerous. That's the other thing I think is really important about the First Amendment is every time uh, someone thinks, and this, happen, this is happening, I think, right now in Congress, with a particular statute that we can get into if you want. But every time somebody thinks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change this because I don't like the way this speech is going. I don't like what people are saying here. Just remember, that law gets fixed, and then a new uh, set of people come into power. They're not going to use the law that, the same way that you thought it was going to be. Right, yeah. Right? The law is, a, is written a certain way, but then it gets used by whoever is in power. Yeah, just the thing to remember is, and I use this for this audience, I'd use the other example for another audience, is that any, uh, any new latitude for speech restrictions that you are arguing for, if it gets adopted, it could be used next year by Donald Trump. Right. Maybe right. in a few yeah. more years by either Trump or whoever the next Trump is. That's for another audience, it would have said by Hillary Clinton, right? We, you have to understand that, and I think that's been a foundational principle of First Amendment law and First Amendment lawmaking for a century. People have said, look, you know, we're going to have all sorts of people in power at the federal level, but even more so at the state level. You could have really, and then other institutions, could be universities, could be, could be all sorts of things. So the question is, do you want to empower them? If you really trusted the government in all situations, if you thought they always did the right thing, then of course, why not give them this, this kind of power? Uh, but if you don't trust the government, <laughs> and I don't trust the government, then then you should be reluctant point. to give them this power, and you should be particularly reluctant to give the government power in a time when the administration happens to be one that you trust, because the one thing that that is sure to happen is that at one point they'll get thrown out of office, and the people you don't like are going to get in. Yeah, um, and uh, along with other unpopular. Uh, um, causes. Um, there are a lot of, Jody, there are a lot of very provocative speakers that have been heckled and shut down on campuses. Um, you've said that protesting those speakers is First Amendment speech, but do you think the protests should stop the speakers from speaking? Oh, no, I've been protested for deploying the N-word in some of my presentations, mm -hmm. public presentations. 
And I have... And you get protested right on the spot when you're like... Yeah, outside this building right now, there would be protesters. And I viewed it as an opportunity to explain why, to acknowledge their pain, because I understood that this was and is a word that wounds. It's a jagged edge word. And it has been used to spirit murder them for hundreds of years. And I want to understand what they're saying and feel their pain and really sit with it, right? And then, with that in mind, say why I think using it in these settings is valuable and necessary in ways that are tailored to make allowances for their concerns and feelings at the same time, right? I don't use the N-word in my first-year classrooms, although I could. You know, I've written, I wrote a book on this, right? Um, and uh, I don't, with my torch class or with my criminal law class, first-year students who have no choice but to take the class with me. Um, I don't, and we don't as a school, when it comes to any courses that you're going to take for bar preparation purposes, compulsory courses, because again, you don't have any choice. But we, I have complete choice when it comes to my seminars. Yeah. I let the students know ahead of time, I'm going to be deploying this word as part of a scholarly project. And you, have, you don't have, this isn't a bar course, you don't have to take this course. And I'm not going to spring it on you. Right? And I am someone who can find lots of justifications for using it. I, I, believe me, I can get, go through a long laundry list of pedagogical imperatives it serves, right? But I feel their pain. I talk and look into these people's eyes and I feel the pain. And when I, I, fig, I figure that in my cost-benefit analysis from a pedagogical perspective. I'm trying to be a pedagogical, effective pedagogical person. Right? And I'm thinking, okay, this will promote maybe verisimilitude in the classroom of some kind and, you know, professional toughening or whatever the pedagogical purposes are served. Those are the benefits. What about the cost? Who's bearing those costs? Are some people disproportionately bearing those costs and the others not? You know? And so I go out and engage those people. And then I tailor appropriately rather than just standing on well, let me just be edgy and what the hell and, you know, reenact and, you know, for the sake of reenactment or whatever. Uh, so, yeah, I recognize I'm not, you know, I recognize that I have something to learn from them and that I am not, I don't have a monopoly of the gospel truth when it comes to freedom of speech. Although, man, I know there wouldn't be a Black Lives Movement without robust freedom of speech. I saw it happen. I saw July 13th. 2013, here's Black Lives Matter hashtag pops up. You know, Trayvon Martin's killers just been acquitted. Then a year later, here's, here's Brown and Black Twitter, along with other social media, but took off. If they had been shut down, I saw that makes a movement. You want, what you were saying, you, you, you know, Eugene is spot on. You know, you have, you had the, the movement of our generation. The generational upheaval a couple years ago was made possible by robust protection of First Amendment rights. Right? right? Not letting, you know, companies even, even private companies come in and just shut it down, shut them down, but let alone, you know, kind of, kind of government companies. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, didn't, I think I didn't even realize that that's how you use it, like where you try to almost use it like therapy with people. Um, because I was going to ask you, isn't it kind of like using that word, kind of like fighting words, those words that you're not supposed to use under the First Amendment, the ones that can cause, move people to violence? I mean, don't, do you worry that you step over a line at any time when you use yeah, it? Yeah, I, I, I want to robustly protect, you know, because I know that any power I give to make that decision is going to be turned on me quick, fast, and in a hurry. You know, they're going to characterize me as a black identity extremist. 
as they have, because I've been associated with Black Lives Matter, and here we are, off to the races. Who, who knows what I can and can't say now? You know, this is one of the reasons I'm a big supporter of Julian Assange, you know, and, and, and done work in support of his cause, because, you know, once you come under the First Amendment tent, you know, we have to look out for one another. You know, sinews of connection should be strong and, and incorporate someone like that. But, um, yes, yeah, so it is, it's not because of any sympathy or empathy I have for racists or, you know, Klansmen or ethno-nationalists, demagogues or what have you. There's nothing about that that is making me support this. It is, I know that, you know, there is linguistic and non-linguistic forms of, black, of communication that made the black power movement possible. Afros were part of the Black Lives Matter movement, mm -hmm. right? They were non-linguistic forms of symbolic communication used for political purposes, and it helped to bond the brothers and sisters back then into a cohesive unit to struggle for civil rights. You know, and they did effectively. And so I don't want anyone coming in and trying to trammel in any way, uh, you know, marginalized groups, peoples, efforts to express, you know, themselves however they want. Okay. So if I could just, uh, 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 you said fighting words, and that's a legal phrase. There's a bit of right. legalese, and, you know, my law professor, uh, <laughs> tennis starts twiddling. So it's a good opportunity to, to, to try to unpack that phrase. Okay. So fighting words, generally speaking, are face-to-face -face personal insults that are likely to cause a fight. So one thing that early on came up was, well, what about things that people find really offensive? but that are not face-to-face -face personal insults. And the court says, that's not fighting words. Classic example, 1971 case uh, from Los Angeles. Uh, I want to say Paul David Cohen shows up in the courthouse wearing a jacket that says, fuck the draft. He gets prosecuted uh, because the, uh, it was, uh, in fact, the prosecution was for essentially disturbing the peace, which is exactly the same crime that is generally used with regard to fighting words. And the court, uh, by a 6-3 vote, I think, was written by Justice Harlan, who's not a fire-breathing radical. He was sort of a moderate conservative in the court, says, uh, no, no, this is, not, uh, this is not fighting words because it's not, a, it's not targeted to a particular person. So if you say to someone, fuck you, to their face, that might still be fighting words. It certainly probably would have been back in 71. Uh, but, if you, but if I'm teaching the case and I say, fuck, this is the case about fuck the draft, that's different. That's why, while I agree with, very much with Jody, I actually don't quite agree with regard to, to slurs. I, uh, I, don't, uh, I, I used to do this in my first year classes, too. And now I teach a second year class, which is a, possibly a bar class, Con Law 2, First Amendment Law. And when we have cases that involve slurs, I quote them. I quote them in writing in my book, I quote them in writing in my articles, I quote them on my slides, I quote them in person. I've had a lot of pushback for it, but I think that this is the legal profession in which if you search for these slurs on Westlaw, which is the legal database, yeah. just in the last 20 years, you're gonna find over 10,000. Overall, it's probably in the, in the many tens of thousands, at the very least 20,000. You, you aggregate them all together. These are real cases that lawyers are going to have to deal with, and the norm in the legal profession is that when we are talking about a word, that, so mentioning the word, that is quite different from using it as an insult. To give another example, there's a famous line from Buck v. Bell, a case which upheld uh, the um, uh, upheld the uh, sterilization of people who were seen at the time as mentally deficient. And it was from Ju Justice Holmes, who said a lot of good things. This one is generally not thought to be a good thing. Uh, three generations of imbeciles are enough. I'd never call a student an imbecile in class, but right. of course we'd quote that. Right. Uh, so I think that that's a very important distinction. And, uh, and the N-word falls under that distinction. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely, entirely. Okay. Among other things, because otherwise then you're going to have to say, well, uh, this, this slur, well, you can never even quote it. But these other slurs you can quote. Uh, no, I, I don't think that's right. And again, lots of people disagree with me on that. Uh, but, uh, but I do very much agree with, with Jody that the broader picture uh, uh, is that the First Amendment has been tremendously important, not just in the past, but today, in protecting all sorts of speech, uh, including uh, movements of people who have been disempowered. Uh, that if you look, for example, at the 1960s, uh, um, uh, 1960s leading, uh, 1950s and 60s, and up to the 80s leading cases, a lot of them involve the NAACP uh, as a party, those that don't involve various aspects of the civil rights struggle. Uh, that was true then, that continues to be true today. Um, 
We actually, we're getting a bunch of questions. So, um, um, ah, and here's one I was actually thinking of asking. So I'll do this one. <laughs> uh, this is from one of the people listening. Um, I'd like to hear more on your question about the protesters not allowing speech, such as the recent protests at Loyola Marymount during the mayoral candidates debate, um, where, I, I don't know if you guys watched it, but so many people protested so often that it was, I mean, it really was uh, interfering with the ability of the purpose of that event, which was to have candidates speak. And I wondered, um, is that an exercise of those protesters' fair, uh, free speech? Or could you say, no, I mean, come on, this is a time and place. Is this a time, place, manner thing? I mean, I don't know. Um, that's, I'm sorry. That's, I mean, I think that's where you can sometimes see a tension. There's something called the heckler's veto. Oh, yeah. Right? And the right. idea well, that's is, it. Yeah. should the person who has been invited to speak be able to speak? Well, that's the default, right? But should people be able to protest the speaker? Yes, they should. And so the, the tricky thing is finding the balance where the speaker can speak and the protesters can protest. We actually had a case um, where Ben Shapiro, who's a pretty famous conservative commentator, was on Cal State LA's campus, and we represented um, faculty and staff at uh, Cal State LA who um, were sued after the, this event by Ben Shapiro for supposedly being a part of a protest. Wow. And one of, the, one of the, our clients was um, Dr. Abdullah, who's one of the founders of the Black Lives Matter uh, movement here in LA. And, you know, I, first of all, there was, a, there was a dispute about how much the, the um, faculty and staff had been involved. But the point was, of course they can be there to protest. And he was inside the room, Shapiro was inside the room, and um, he, there was no reason why he couldn't give his address. He did. The room was, uh, had people in it. People were listening. It was also being streamed like this is. And it was this concept that people say, well, I should be the only one who gets to speak right now. I think is that's not right. That's not right. The protesters should be able to protest. Speakers can speak, and they can speak to their audience. That's the beauty of the First Amendment is figuring out how everybody can get their voices out. But it's, it's really damaging, I think, when you start thinking about, well, no, the protesters can't protest because that is critical. And I think that's part of what Jody was trying to say, right, is that it, the protests of all different kinds have led to enormous change in this country. And, that's, and we won that one, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that's what's important, I think, is thinking about it in that context. Yeah. And I would also say, who are we to judge about whether that was a successful event or not because it wasn't orderly in the fashion that, that may have, we thought it was going to be going in. I think that the protesters would, would say that it was success, a successful event on their behalf because they got to have their, uh, their uh, perspectives were voiced. And so I think that, yeah, we can't, um, as JP says, we, 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 we can't say that, um, well, this group gets to speak and when they get to speak and how they get to speak and they get to do it uncontested, that doesn't necessarily make that, you know, that's not necessarily freedom of speech. Uh, that's control. Well, let me ask you this. Uh, you know, there are lots of people who are very, very firm that there's a genocide going on of the unborn. They think it is mass murder and they feel they need to stop it. That's not my view. Uh, I've actually represented some people along those lines because I think they have the right to say this, but I'm happy to represent people on the other side as well. Um, but imagine that anytime somebody wanted to have a pro-choice event or even an event that is seen by some as being not tough enough on abortion, that there would be people coming, going in, shouting, stop the, mur the genocide of the unborn, to the point where it's really hard to make out what the speakers are saying. Do you think that's just, you know, that's free speech by the, by the pro-life forces? Or, do, or should we say, look, you're entitled to speak at the same time. You're entitled to speak at the same place. But you're not entitled to speak at the same time at the same place. And that we need to have, we need to say, look, if there's a people on, uh, on the panel, then like now we're, we're having a conversation and people presumably came to listen to us. And then afterwards there may be some Q&A, in which case, you know, the questioners get to ask their questions. That sounds eminently reasonable from our perspective as the talking heads. 
Yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Right? right, but I can also think about it from their perspective as a non-linguistic form of symbolic communication that they want to use to express their political juthers in the way the Black Lives Matter did when it used disruption as a tool. The, right? It used the Black Lives Matter tool case, tool, toolbox uh, included two things, right? Dis disruption, shut it down and then uncomfortable conversations. Let's have some uncomfortable conversations. One, two. And the shut it down meant that, damn it, I didn't get to wax, you know, academic <laughs> as in many settings like this. Right. I remember it happening, you know, a number of times. Damn it, you know, that, that was a cost. But I, again, like I often do, weighted against their benefit of, you know, that form of really kind of political communication too, just shut it down, disruption, at least a polit political methodology. So I should tell my anti-abortion buddies, they should go to town, you know, <laughs> go, if you find people who are complicit in the murder of the unborn, again, it's not, not my personal view, but it is theirs and they seem quite sincere about it, then yeah, shut them down. Shut down all the speeches, shut down all the panels, shut down all the classes perhaps even, because after all, if they're teaching kind of the collaboration with the, with the, genoc with the genocidaires, then, uh, you know, we should be shutting them down. Is that, should can, that be allowed for them to do that? They can strive to do that and get enough public consensus behind them. I would hope that before 1860, they would have shut the shit down on slavery, right, for one. And I, I would hope that they would have shut enough things down when it came to the Japanese while we were interning them. I wish some people would have shut some stuff down. Right, yeah. but I think they could have gotten a consensus. You try to build a consensus and see what happens. If they could have got a consensus, BLM got a heck of a consensus. You saw it in here six weeks in a row, day in, day out, tens of thousands of people. That's a heck of a consensus to build. No, not just any, you know, there's part of a political process. This communication is part of a political process. Yeah. Well, is it, in the case of protesters and hecklers, is it within a venue's purview to have security forcibly remove the hecklers, which is what did happen at LMU? I'm, I, yeah, it's going to happen. I've, I've, been, I've been kettled by police. I knew it was going to happen. You know, it was one of the risks I took. I, I'm not saying it was a good thing. It was the right thing. I just knew it was going to happen. Yeah. You know, so I, yeah, you seem never, when you're going to be civilly disobedient, civil disobedience comes with a price tag. Right. Yeah. And this thing we call democracy that we pine for, we have to remember, it's not a pretty process. Uh, it's, it's not a fine dining event. It's a food fight sometimes. <laughs> and uh, and, and it, it should be. And it always has been. And so let's not act like, again, that that's, that that's new. Yeah. Oh, well, let's talk a little bit about free speech online. Um, Google, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram have shut down COVID vaccine deniers. You can write about your personal experience with the vaccine, but you cannot say the vaccine paralyzes you or whatever. Um, they, I understand they're private companies because so they're not subject to First Amendment the way the government is. However, they are huge, obviously huge platforms. Should they act? Were they right when they shut down those deniers or and other people, Trump? Um, or should they have let those people still have a platform? I mean, I think whether they're right or not is a normative decision to be made by the company. but. They do have the right to do it. That's their First well, Amendment that's, right. That's true. Right to to choose who they want to have on their platform or not have on their platform. We we just had a case like this out of New York, and yet we're defending the company's First Amendment right. It might sound strange, but companies, as Eugene was saying, companies, unions, all different collections of people have the right. And here they've got a platform, and if you don't like that you're getting kicked off the platform, Mr. President, go start your own platform. And he tried. And it's yeah. failing miserably, and that's yeah. fine by me. But you know, there's a there's a there's a reason for that is because these companies, um, they should be able to choose who they want to have on there because it's their platform for speech. Didn't they say you can go to parlor parlor, and yeah. he went to parlor, and that shut down? I mean, I, I, I kind of vaguely remember there really not being that much of an option. And yeah. I just just real quickly say George Orwell warned about you know not just government but private sources of constraint on what should be free expression. So I worry about the oligarchs having, 
you know, that kind of power. I just Joe, worry a little. I, but just I hear you. I hear worry. there's a worry about that. But, but who tells them not yeah, to do yeah, that? It's, it's the tough. government. It's tough, yeah. Right? It's a, it's, it's a yeah. legislator or it's a court saying, no, you have to carry that person's speech. I'm less, I hear your concern, but I'm less comfortable with a judge or a legislator or a president or whoever it is saying, no, you, you have to carry their speech than I am with the company saying, we're not interested in carrying your speech. And you gotta, you gotta pick one or the other kind of, and I don't, I don't trust the government. Yeah. <laughs> so I think, I think yeah. uh, I, uh, first of all, another thing Jody and I agree on, this is certainly something you should worry about. Maybe on balance <laughs> it's the right thing to do, but whenever super powerful companies that have more, uh, more revenues than most governments in the, in the world start making these decisions, you gotta worry, like what's the next one? Uh, uh, what, uh, and uh, uh, I also agree with JP that under existing law, generally speaking, they are free to decide what goes onto their own property or whatnot. Here's what I think makes it complicated. And I wrote an 86-page article about this, so I'm not <laughs> gonna go into all the detail. But, but over there, over there, sitting right there, is a representative of a newspaper. Perfectly clear that newspapers get to pick and choose what goes on the, on the paper. Uh, it goes in the paper. And in fact, they'd be useless if they didn't. Right? right? If you didn't decide, well, this just isn't good enough for our purposes, or if you were, let's say, an opinion magazine, like a National Review or New Republic, the whole value of you would be that you have a particular editorial uh, uh, position, and that's why people subscribe to you. There's actually more diversity of options available when there could be a left-wing magazine, a right-wing magazine, in between magazines and such. Well, I, I mean, I would say that what we write at the, uh, at the news side at the LA Times is we're trying to, we do make decisions. Right. No, no, no. But yeah. I, I mean, I, Right. I'm paid to have an opinion. I'm off on right. editorial. Right, oh, right, right. I'm sorry. Uh, I shifted to magazines because magazines are often overtly. Yeah. If you wanted to be ideological, I think you'd have every right to do that. And if you want to be straight news, I think that's great too. But even in that process, you make these decisions. Yeah. But we don't have anybody representing. But imagine here sitting somebody who works for Verizon. They're a private company too, right? They also carry speech. But they. But if they said, no, we don't like this, you, you, this entity is using this, uh, a nonprofit is using this phone line in order to spread bad ideas about vaccination or anti-government ideas or anti-phone company ideas or racist ideas or communist ideas, we're just going to, we're just going to kick them off. Well, let's say, no, 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 that's not your job, phone company. You're a so-called common carrier. Your job is to carry everyone to be sure everyone who's, who can pay. UPS and FedEx are the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, so the question is, where should Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, let's say, be on the spectrum between the newspaper and the phone company slash UPS and FedEx? Should they, should they, they have complete First Amendment protections uh, for their decisions about what to exclude? Or should it be like the phone company where, you know, absent some legal rules, it'll be their property, they can do whatever, but we have implemented legal rules and we don't think those violate the First Amendment. That's what makes it a tough question, is that there are these two different kinds of models, both involving private companies, but for some, perhaps because we worry too much about these companies having too much power uh, to, to turn their economic power into political power, we tell them, no, you can't discriminate based on viewpoint or based on other things. And other places where we welcome their ability to be discriminating, to yeah. pick and choose the good stuff for the benefit of their audience. Well, and also when, when the government censors, uh, not censors, when a government pressures, when the government pressures a tech company to censor something, that is misuse of First Amendment. Right? So, I mean, is, is that a first, well, I guess what I should say is, is that a misuse of the First Amendment when the government is trying to pressure a tech company to censor President Trump or stuff about January 6th or stuff about COVID? Was prior restraint, right? Yeah, I think, it is a, I think it is a violation of the First Amendment. For the government to put enough pressure on a company, I mean, obviously there can be communications and I don't approve of that and whatnot, but if, if it goes to the next level where it's um, using the force of law or using the color of authority to say, we are going to do something here, or we are going to investigate you, or we are going to pass a law that affects you, um, 
then I do think that that's a problem under the First Amendment because mm -hmm. the First Amendment is designed. I mean, again, this gets back to the same. Even if you think that's a good idea because it's being used against a group you don't like, yeah. next year it's going to be used against a group you do like. You know, you've got to think of it that way. And so, yes, the government, there is a, that can be a gray area, but there is a point at which the government put, putting pressure on a private company and its ability to make First Amendment choices is a First Amendment violation. Okay. I mean, what about conservative communities who are pressuring school boards to ban books, often focused on people of color and LGBTQ issues? Doesn't that violate the First Amendment? I mean, what about that Florida don't say gay bill? I mean, aren't those First Amendment issues? So if we're talking about public schools, those are parts of the government. They are agencies of the state. Yeah. Someone's got to decide what they teach. Are they going to teach in favor of racial tolerance, or are they going to teach in favor of racial hostility? Are they going to teach in favor of environmentalism, or are they going to teach in favor of anti-environmentalism? Uh, so that is treated as government speech. Now, it's an interesting question where what is a policy matter? Who should decide this? Should it be teachers? Like in the universities, we have, maybe wrongly, but we have said generally it's up to each teacher in the classroom to decide what, uh, how to teach. We generally don't do that in K-12 schools, but we could say that should be up to each teacher. But still, the teacher is only entitled to teach there because the teacher is an employee of the state. Or you could say it's the principal that makes this decision. Or you could say it's the local school board that makes this decision. Or you can make, say, the Florida legislature or the state legislature makes mm -hmm. this decision. Somebody's got to make those decisions. So that's why I don't think that's a First Amendment violation. It may be bad teaching. It may be te narrow-minded. It may be trying to teach kids to be narrow-minded. Uh, depends on the circumstances, maybe, as to some things we should try to teach them to be more narrow-minded rather, uh, 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 rather than less. Uh, but in any event, it's not a First Amendment violation because it's all about telling the state telling state employees state, what they can say as part of their state jobs. Now, if a state were to try to say, tell that to private schools, clear First Amendment violation. If the federal government were to try to tell that to states, which are a separate government, you know, that's an interesting question, not actually fully resolved. But if a state just says, look, you know, we used to let teachers make these decisions or principals make these decisions. We don't really trust local teachers or principals. We're going to make this decision at the state legislative level that could be bad for various reasons or could be good for some reasons, but it's not a First Amendment violation. Um, well, that's a bummer. Um, uh, we're, um, we've got a bunch of questions and I'm going to start taking more of them now, but I, I just have one uh, last thing that I wanted to ask you, which is Sarah Palin lost her uh, libel suit against the New York Times at the federal district court level. Um, she will probably appeal and she'll probably lose at the appellate level and then she'll go to the Supreme Court, undoubtedly, or probably. If the Supreme Court gets her case, do you think that they will change the high bar on libel that public officials are held to? I mean, you really have to, a newspaper has to go nuts before it's, it's found guilty of libel uh, on a public figure. And, and do, you think, do you think they'll lower that bar and should it be lowered? I, I don't think they're gonna take the case and it uh, definitely should not be lowered. Okay. Um, okay. and, and I'll start with the second point, which is, and, and, and this is what you're getting at, is that public figures and public officials in a defamation case have to show what's called actual malice, yeah. which means knowledge of falsity or reckless disregard for the truth, which is very hard to prove, and she was not able to prove in this case against the New York Times. And there's, but there's two components going on in the, in the, Sarah, in the Sarah Palin case. One was actual malice that it exists at the federal constitutional level, which is rooted in the First Amendment. And the second is that New York State has its own actual malice requirements. And so that's why I, and, and the court held, and the jury apparently found, in a weird procedural quirk, at the same time, or nearly at the same time, that, um, that, the, that uh, Ms. Palin had not satisfied the actual malice standard under either, right? So uh, they, they weren't liable. So that's why I don't think, I'm, I'm curious to hear what everybody else thinks. I don't think the US Supreme Court would be interested in the case, mainly for two reasons. One is um, because there's still the state law 
actual malice standard. And so I don't think that, it, that, that they don't touch. The, I mean, for the most part, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court does not get involved in what state laws are. That's not always the case, but in a situation like this, I think that's what would happen. And the second is, she's not even, there's, it's not a question about whether she's a public figure. Right. It's, she's one of the most public figures in this country. Right. I think that I think there are justices on the Supreme Court, Thomas and Gorsuch, who are interested in revisiting New York Times versus Sullivan, which federalized and constitutionalized the actual malice standard. But I think if and when they're going to start looking at that, it's going to be in the context of someone who is a closer call. Uh, of a public figure or an involuntary public figure or a limited public figure. It's not going to be someone like Sarah Palin, who's obviously a public figure. She doesn't. And the whole point behind this doctrine, by the way, is that she and other public figures like her don't need help. She calls a press conference. People are going to show up. They're going to hear what she has to say. They're going to hear her point of view. I have a question, though. Um, does the standard for what a public figure was when Sullivan, when the Sullivan case was uh, argued, has that changed now? I think it's evolved. I mean, th that case was a public official case, right? Because Sullivan was a, a commissioner, uh, police commissioner. But it's through other cases like Gertz, and, and, and it's evolved through the years so that you have this kind of three-part um, variety of public figures. Like I mentioned, the general purpose, limited purpose, and involuntary public figures. I think for a general purpose public figure, I don't think that it's it's really that different now than it was in the 60s, for example, when the Gertz case um, came out. Um, I really am going to go with these questions, but Batinto, just quickly, one more thing that I really want to hear you talk about. Um, uh, there's a lot of pressure on reporters who have social media to not voice their opinion on stuff. Uh, the, the, the basic rule is you're trying to protect the credibility of the paper. And if a reporter is seen voicing an opinion, it gives the impression that the reporter can't, or an, uh, and other reporters can't fairly cover big stories. And people have been, reporters have been suspended for their positions on social media. Um, one of them is suing at the Washington Post. What do you think, are newspapers, they're private companies, as mm. Eugene has told us, um, do you think that newspapers and media companies that sort of censor their reporters are going overboard? Are they violating their, well, they're not violating it, but are they going overboard or is that right? So what I will say is, is I believe, this is just my opinion, that media companies have the right to protect what their what their brand is and what their um how their what their perception is in in the public and if you your decision to accept the job working for a particular company is your choice mm -hmm. and you can have your political views or your perceptions or, or opinions that you want to express but you also have to take into account who it is that you go to work for and whether or not that company aligns with what your views are and, and whether you should uh, be allowed to express your views on social media or not. And journalism has evolved and it's continuing to evolve. And the model that we've known for such a long time, this ob objective, both sides, fairness, um, model still exists, but there is a you know an emerging model, an advocacy journalism model that has emerged that is is really also very much a part of the healthy process. And so I think that as journalists, which is across the, the spectrum of where we can go to practice the craft, you know it's it's just like okay, there's lots of people who can carry the title of being a doctor. It just depends on what, my, what type of doctor am I. I could be a doctor who practices veterinary science, but does that mean then that I can go be in a trauma one center? Yeah. Uh, okay, and so if I am a journalist who believes in advocacy journalism, then maybe I don't necessarily need to be at the LA Times or at the Washington Post. I 
I have said that before to people. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, what do we, this is a question from people watching and listening. Uh, what do you think are the biggest threats to the First Amendment? What do you think the, will be the biggest threats to the First Amendment over the next 20 years? Anyone? Before anybody answers that, I want you to tell me what you predicted would happen in 2022, in 2002. And if your prediction was spot on, I'd love to hear what you say. <laughs> but if you can't say, oh yes, Donald, I knew Donald Trump would get elected, uh, then in that case, I don't know, your crystal ball, like mine, mine, is, mine has never worked. Okay. Hey, hey, even 20 years ago, people were saying this country could elect Donald Trump, some people. Uh -huh. Well, I want to listen to those. I want them to tell me what's going to happen. Donald Trump wasn't surprised at the Black Lives Matter folk. <laughs> they, they, no, 2016 was not a surprise. I was shocked all the way up to, you know, 11.30 p.m. on the night of the election. So I think to answer that question, yeah. I think um, one of the changes that may be coming is not really a First Amendment change, but it, I think it could have a big impact on free speech and the First Amendment, which is um, the changing or even possibly the repeal as we know it of something called Section 230. Mm -hmm. It's kind of an obscure law to, to, to folks who, who aren't familiar with it, but basically it is the law that created the internet. And what it says is anybody who is a user or a provider of uh, basically a website, there's a more technical term, interactive uh, computer service, they are not responsible for content that they do not create. In other words, you have a website and someone else posts something on the website, or even um, you have a website and you take information from another website. There's a California Supreme Court case that says you take information from another website and you put it on your website. You're not liable for that content if you did not create that content. People on the left, people on the right, in the House and the Senate are very unhappy with this law the way it is. But this law is really what makes the internet the way it is now that we know it. And I, there are so many different versions of potential changes to this law. It's hard to guess which one, if any, are going to come out as uh, the, the real effect. But if there is a change, that could change the way that we see the internet completely. It's not really a First Amendment issue so much, but it is a liability issue in terms of these companies that host or even use the internet could wind up finding themselves liable for what other people's content is. That's, that was actually one of the questions, so that was good that you figured that out. See, I can guess things ahead of time. You're good mm. at it. <laughs> um, Spotify and Joe Rogan and HBO and Dave Chappelle these are private streaming services. Does free speech apply to them? No, right? <laughs> well, the First Amendment doesn't apply to them. I, mean, I can say that with great confidence. Right, the First Th Amendment. That's well settled. State action doctrine, if you want to label. Free speech? You know, free speech is a broader question, right? Harvard is a private university. But we think some elements of free speech apply, at least in certain situations there. Uh, it's complicated. Not, I mean, there's no free speech in deciding, for example, uh, which, uh, which lecturers get invited to give special lectures, let's say. But some elements of free speech apply. Broader elements of kind of tolerance and openness apply. So you might ask, do you want, again, to be in a position where very large, powerful, uh, uh, economically powerful companies uh, decide, no, no, you are out of bounds, whether because we don't like you or because enough people don't like you, mm. that we're going to go along with them. Or is it better if they say, look, we are not legally bound to be like the phone company, but it's probably better for everyone if we are kind of like the phone company. We, our main value added, unlike with a newspaper, isn't our editorial function. Our menu, main value added is we provide a useful, useful platform. Uh, so, so that, those, I think, are difficult questions. They're in part they're not purely legal questions, but again, we should we should ask ourselves, and if, especially if you don't like Citizens United, if you wish that the court had allowed more restrictions on corporations because you think that they shouldn't be able to leverage their economic power into political power. Remember, Citizens United involved uh, uh, involves corporations simply trying to speak, but you think that even that shouldn't be allowed because they're too powerful. Well, if you think corporations are too powerful to be able to even speak about candidates, then well, 
maybe they're too powerful to, for us to encourage them to actually try to restrict speech, even speech on their own property. Well, they were That's the question. They were speaking with their money. Well, and some of this is a free market issue, right? Right. Mm -hmm. Is if you don't like Joe Rogan, I don't like Joe Rogan, yeah. then don't subscribe to Spotify. Yeah. And if enough people stop subscribing to Spotify, they'd take care of it. Well, you but know? isn't that what people said in the 50s? Look, you know, if you don't like all these communists working in Hollywood, you should threaten to boycott Hollywood. And if enough people threaten to boycott Hollywood, you know, Hollywood will come up with some technique. Maybe they'll call it the blacklist. That would be a nice name. And then we'll have, we won't have this evil communist. This is these. I mean, this was communists often people who were communist supporters during this. This was during the Stalin era. This this is the the communism that murdered tens of millions of people, as well as being uh, essentially fighting a war against the U.S. through proxies in in uh, in Korea. Um, so so you know, one possible answer is yeah, that made sense. That in fact, communists deserved to be blacklisted, or even if they didn't deserve to, it's just free market. And you know, Hollywood is a private company, and people threatened to boycott our private people is just the push poll of politics. That's one possible answer. Another possible answer is it actually makes for a poorer, poorer society, poorer, uh, a, a intellectually poorer society. If people know that, you know, the, if they say certain things, they're going to get boycotted, they're going to lose their livelihoods. Uh, so it's a difficult question, but I do think that you want to ask yourself, uh, where would you stand on something like the Hollywood blacklist if it's after people sort of extremists on one side? And then if you, if you think that that wasn't a good idea, then maybe extremists or sometimes even non-extremists on the other side. Maybe you don't want private companies to try to suppress them either. Um, how has cancel culture undercut the value and or design of free speech? Hmm. What is cancel culture? Good question. You know, help me out. You know, you I, I hear so it's it's such a vague phrase. You know, I, it's like I critical agree. race theory. I agree. I agree with you. Yeah. <laughs> we don't know what it is, but we know those preschoolers are getting it. <laughs> <laughs> we know that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, you know, cancel culture is does, is cancel culture. I just don't know what what does it mean. Does it mean that there are consequences to your speech? You know that 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 there is a marketplace that will respond in a negative way if you say, you know, maybe even in a private kind of, you know, university setting or in some other setting that you want to, oh, I don't know, I started teaching criminal law in 97 and a shocking number of states still, had, it, was, it was still legal to declare same-sex intimacy a felony. True. Wow. So, you know, when I bring that up with my criminal law students now, they think I'm talking about the 1880s, <laughs> right? They can't believe it was just that long ago. Yeah. So if, a, if, a, if some group, group said, we don't want people coming on this campus saying we need to make felons out of LGBTQ plus members again. Right. We need to go back to that. Um, that for me, that's a hard case. That, that, that's not an easy case. You know, even though I recognize that, you know, if I give them that power, then the next they're going to come, be coming after right. somebody like me. I'm, I'm worried about that on the one hand. On the other hand, I just think, haven't we, don't we have some, can't we point to some beachheads, some milestones that we have collectively reached and we won't go back on in some way? And I know that's problematic. You know, what, how, what, what's the consensus on what those milestones are and what those beachheads are? For me, I, you know, saying we need to go back to what I was teaching in 1997, 8, and 2000 is a bridge too far that I'm willing to say uh, I, I, can find, I can recognize some constraints, even though I'm otherwise a robust first speecher, free speecher, rather, first amendmenter. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think that, um, I think they may have just meant, well, I don't know, I, I don't want to speak for the, the, the person who wrote this, but having witnessed some of it, um, even among private chat groups at the LA Times in the wake of George Floyd, I think there was just a sense of people would say something not horrendous, but not exactly what a lot of other people wanted to hear, and they would just be attacked for it. And there was a whole sense of why can't, then there became a whole cry for civility and I don't know, and not canceling people. Um, Oh, I, I, I've seen that happen on, on university campuses. I've seen the pitchforks come out. 
and yeah. I, 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 I've had a gasp. So, and, and yet the same teachers in the classroom are teaching civility and, you know, rational discourse and all, all the rest. So, yeah, I, there, there is that danger too. I'm not going to downplay it or lowball it. Okay. Um, we're, we actually need to stop. I wish though that um, somebody uh, asked kind of a long question, but I'm going to distill it down to, um, What's, what's the deal with yelling fire in a crowded theater? Somebody told me that First Amendment lawyers and professors, um, professors who teach it, hate that phrase. It's because the, the phrase omits the word falsely, right? The line from Holmes was the First Amendment does not protect, he said the other, the stuff before a little differently, I'm paraphrasing here, but it does not protect, quote, falsely, uh, yeah. shouting fire in a crowded theater. Yeah, falsely shouting fire in a crowded theater literally is indeed going to be punishable because it's a knowingly false statement, assuming it's a lie and not just a mistake, right. uh, that actually causes immediate tangible harm. That is going to be punishable. Uh, if you use it figuratively to refer to like falsely saying something that might cause, uh, might cause immediate harm other than just a stampede, maybe so. But you omit the falsely, and now all of a sudden you're saying anything that the government says essentially might cause people to behave badly is going to be punishable. And that, yeah, that, that's a pretty big power to give to a future Trump administration. That's, so, and that, yeah, ahead. I agree. Omitting the word falsely changes the meaning of the so, entire thing. So that's what if the there, issue is, no, omitting I think there's, an, I think there's I another, there another one. Yeah, subtlety okay. to it as well. But Right. I mean, if there actually were a, if I saw a fire and I said, hey, there's right. a fire, wouldn't everyone want to know there was a fire? Right. 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 Okay. But there's another dynamic going on, which is, um, I think for some people and why it causes irritation for some people is that it's, it's kind of an outdated uh, catchphrase for what is now a more recent, and it's not even that recent anymore, um, test under something called Brandenburg versus Ohio, mm -hmm. that has it for an immediate harm, and which is what Eugene was getting at. And I think in the right context, falsely yelling, uh, shouting fire in a, in a crowded theater could satisfy the Brandenburg test, but that's a different, it's a different test. There's a more modern test now. Um, I wanna thank you all for a wonderful, amazing conversation. And, um, and, and now I know I can protest <laughs> and shut things down. It'll be fine. Um, and thank you to everyone in our live audience for, uh, for being here. And thank you for people online for watching. Um, you'll be able to find a summary of our talk at ZocaloPublicSquare.com by tomorrow, plus interviews with our panelists and other events in this series. And please do subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter and podcast for more great conversations. Thank you, Batento, Jody, JP, Eugene. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.